We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. What a One of the most confusing and problematic aspects of the season is the fact that the Europa League games have been so much more exciting and dynamic than the league games. Problem solved! This is the Arsenal Vision Postmatch Podcast. My name is Elliot Smith. You can block me on Twitter, Yankee Gunner. Hey, that's right. We no longer have to discuss and debate why the Europa League has been so much more entertaining and exciting than the Premier League because Unai has beaten that out of the team. That's right. Uh, one of the most diabolical performances I can remember in recent memory, a 1-1 uh, at Vitoria, and taking into account the caliber of the opposition, I think you'd have to say this was pretty abominable. Um, so real quick, what we're going to do today, I'm going to talk to Clive about the game. Um, and then after that, after the break, Rob Tanner, who is the Leicester writer for The Athletic, is going to come on and tell us a little bit about what Brendan Rodgers has been doing with Leicester, their season so far, and what... Uh, we can look forward to uh, when we go play them this weekend, and uh, I'm sure we can look forward to probably unpleasantness, but we'll get his take on that, so I'm looking forward to that, and that'll be along in about a half hour. The first 30 minutes we're going to dedicate to the Europa League, sadly, but that's what's going to happen. If you uh, prefer less analytical, more emotive, performative moaning, um, we did a Patreon podcast yesterday about the Europa League game, pretty much right at full time with me and Scott basically sort of leaning into the awfulness and the misery of the occasion. So if you're up for that, uh, you can certainly go to patreon.com forward slash Arsenal Vision Podcast and, uh, and get a load of that. Uh, because we do have a writer from The Athletic coming on, I'll just remind you that if you do want to sign up for The Athletic, uh, there are lots of really cool articles actually coming up lately. Um, uh, James McNicholas, obviously Gunnar Bog wrote a really interesting one about William Saliba. He went to St. Etienne to interview him, and I, I really enjoyed that. So uh, that's something you can check out. Uh, Jack Lang <laughs> wrote an interesting sort of uh, diatribe about the game yesterday that I really enjoyed. So that's something that you can check out as well. But again, it's uh, theathletic.com forward slash Arsenal Vision. That's theathletic.com forward slash Arsenal Vision. And what that does is it gets you half off and uh, two fifty a month is what it comes out to for, for a subscription. So I think, you know, look, uh, we've been talking about them a lot and, and I hope that's not off-putting to anybody, but I do think that the people who've signed up feel like they're getting their money's worth. At least I, I certainly hope that's the case. And uh, we're really excited about the partnership. We have more athletic writers coming on in the next couple of weeks. We've got some really, really big, exciting things from the athletic happening during the inter international break, which will be cool. Um, and then obviously we've got uh, a writer coming on this episode. So there you go. Okay, I feel like that's enough of that. I'm just sort of waffling on for no reason. Um, maybe because I don't want to talk about the football, but we have to do it. And I have to introduce Clive. He's on Twitter at Clive PAFC. Hello, Clive. Hello, hello. Yeah, hey, bud. Um, so look, this wasn't 
the most uh, exciting game, I think it's safe to say. But I think there's a couple of little nuggets of interesting discussion points about this one. And one of them is, it's really funny. So in the Discord, uh, we have a channel that's called Match Day Chat. And people were talking about this game in the Leicester game. And they were like, what's Unai going to do? And I said, he's overdue for a panic move to the back three. And uh, that's exactly what happened. He switched to the back three. Now, if you remember last season, we first saw the back three against Bournemouth as a prelude to him using it successfully against Spurs. In my mind, he went to the back three this game to get a look at it with the idea of maybe using it um, against Leicester at the weekend. He will not have been too happy with what he saw. You know, you and I have discussed on this podcast that the back three can be a very attacking formation, but this game reminded me that Unai's back three is not that. If you take any screen grab from this game, Clive, you can look at a defender with the ball at his feet and no one with no midfielder or forward within 25 yards of him. And so it is no surprise that the three leading passers in this game were Socrates, Holding, and uh, uh, who was our other defender? Mustafi, thank you. Yeah, by by a, a wide margin. So for you, looking at the back three, what is wrong with the way Unai Emery's back three is set up and what prevents it from being able to create pressure on the opposition goal? Okay, good question, mate. So basically, the back three can lull you into a full sense of security because what you have is, you know, you have to think of it as a positional system. So you have your three defenders, you have your two wing backs in in wide areas, and you, and I and I always call that my exterior. Then you have your interior within that. So you almost like create a cradle for your team, right? So and look at it from you know your wing backs almost like your temperature gauges. When you want to push on, you push them forward. And if you're smart, you can have one in front, one midfielder in front. And everything else pushed up. So you can push a team back really quickly with a back three. And if you're smart on your pads, you can switch sides. You can, and, But I'm going to mention a word that we don't do very well. You can penetrate by being aggressive running off the ball. And you can penetrate into spaces that are in front of you. And I think that's what was lacking in this game. We have... You know, Paul was on. He'd like this. We had no penetration, right? We had no. <laughs> it's a layup for had, him. <laughs> we had nobody running into spaces that were in front of them. The passes were so slow. Everything was behind somebody, and so all they were doing was shuffling across. So when you when you what you're looking to gain for a positional system is pitch coverage, which means if you switch the play smartly, you can gain an overload. Because we were playing so slowly with no intent, with no aggression, no intensity, and very little quality, we can look at the system and say that failed. But actually, all of the basics and fundamentals that make a football player and make a team flow were just not present. And I think, I'll tell you now, mate, I'm not one for hyperbole, you know. Um, <laughs> well, I'll do I, it if I, you don't. <laughs> I, I, I tend to look at things on a game-by-game basis. Um, I look at players. I, you know, I try to spot things which offer some insight and thought. But there are some basics in the game of football. And it's called effort and taking opportunities and taking risks. And we put in minimal effort. So we did lots of lateral running, lots of lateral passes. So all the players protected their stats because they had pass completions and they had kilometers covered. But as for penetration, the things that win you football matches, the things that separate from the opposition, you have to try to do that. And in my opinion, we did not try in this game to mm. win this game. We just played this game out. Yeah, I, I mean, did you did you see the pass maps and you know all that stuff that was being shared around from StatZone app? Yeah, yeah, and I mean, yeah. someone in the Discord turned it, rotated it ninety degrees so that it was uh, instead of horizontal, it was vertical. And they said, "Congratulations, we drew Marge Simpson with our pass map." And it does look like that because it's you know it's like a lot of blue lines that sort of horseshoe around a forehead, basically all mounting up back in our defense. Yeah. It, it it is quite hilarious if if it weren't so terrible and depressing um i do want to get your thoughts on just something really quickly while we're here he starts tierney he starts pepe he plays them 90 minutes we do have lester at the weekend yeah. i think his his rotation and his decisions around rotation have been certainly a uh, reason to raise an eyebrow since he's arrived and and some people would say reason for more than that but without getting too over the top about it i mean how do you feel about his decision to do that and what it might mean for the weekend, but also just what it might mean for how he views those players? I, 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 I just don't know. I really don't know. When I saw Tierney's name, I thought, okay, 
why maybe they're going to share the games. Maybe they're going to have a look at the Leicester game and have a look at Bellerin for, you know, half an hour, have a look at, you know, Collar for a, h- half the game. I thought, well, you know, that's smart. You, you drag them over there, give them some minutes, see how they look, you know, see how they look in those situations if you're preparing for the game on the weekend. To run Tierney out, makes me think he won't be playing on Saturday night. And Bellerin probably will be playing on Saturday night, but couldn't he have done with a few minutes in this game? I mean, and as for Pepe now, he's just, just started to find a little bit of form with Sheffield United and the Victoria home game. And suddenly, we're, no, we can't have any of that, son. Let's mm. just get you sat back down again, shall we? So we sit him down after we've been waiting for him, and he comes into this game, and he does okay, but he still looked a bit listless with the rest of them. And, and why I saw you know, that word listless, I just saw a group that um, just, I don't, I got so many messages saying, Clive, is it, have they quit on the manager? Have they quit on the manager? I personally don't want to believe that because that to me is a height of unprofessionalism. But there are things, players I think know they could do more things right without doing things wrong. That makes sense? Mm-hmm. And I think they chose to do just what they needed to do to get through this game rather than do more things right. And um, I, I couldn't see anybody in that group that really exceed expectations, which maybe alludes to the point that they really have shut down. Yeah, and and I mean, look, you know, just quickly rowing back to the issue of, of Tierney versus Kolasinac, like a part of me thought, Clive, and I'm curious to get your take on whether you agree with this, that the reason he was okay doing this is he's like, look, I'm going to go with the back three tonight, and then I'm going to go with it again against Leicester, and I trust mm-hmm. Kolasinac as a wing back in the back three. But with the back three having produced such a diabolical performance for him, now he's in the weird situation of does he try it again against Leicester using Kola as a wing back, or does he abandon it? And now he may feel stuck using Kola as a full back and a back four, which you know he doesn't want to do. Has he sort yeah. of backed himself into a corner there? I think he'll because we we're starting to learn now that he looks at the biggest data point in the opposition team and adjusts his team to that. And we all know that they like to hit Vardy early. If you have a back three, you can have that sweeper type player. You can drop in again. That's going to make you know. I tell you now, it's going to make the pitch very very big. So we're going to have to have good runners in the central areas and good recovery speed. And we know that's not our strength. Although Sabayas went off. In this game, so we won't be having to see Daffy Duck running down the middle any longer. So, um, so I think that's an issue. Just, but you know, we're still not strong in that department. And Leicester are very strong in the transition. They've got punchy speedsters in wide areas. They've got players internally. And I think your point, Elliot. I think maybe he just trusts Krasnick uh, to do that role. And maybe we just have to accept that at this state of Keane's fitness. He's, been pulled out of the Scotland game. I think you'll find I, I felt, don't have to accept anything. Just have one. <laughs> <laughs> um, sort of my, my USB. I, I, <laughs> I, I, you know, it, it made sense to go the other way around and rest the two primary fullbacks and, and see Collar in this system. But he's obviously made a decision to play Tierney in this game. And potentially, but we don't know, do we? We don't know anymore. Potentially play um, Kalashnik in the um, Leicester game. But I, I, I'm not against a back three. It's all again. It's all about how you play. Trust me, mate. It's about how you play. Your intent, your aggression, your intensity, your intent to hurt people and penetrate people. If you don't have that, the system is immaterial, right? Honestly, mate, it's immaterial. It's not. You know, the system was fine. In fact, I had my clean sheet tweet ready to send out until the last couple of minutes, right? So, um, the system was fine. It's just the whole attitude, the whole feeling of this game was really quite bleak. Yeah. Um. So, I got. I got to admit. So, look, Tim Stillman is usually a pretty measured, level-headed guy. I find you may know him from such podcasts as the Arsenal Vision post-match podcast. You can follow him on Twitter at Stillberto. <laughs> he was sat there in the cold in the rain, in Portugal, watching this. And I just had to take a a wander over to his Twitter, thinking he can't be in a very good mood. And sure enough, I see, get rid of this absolute bum for fuck's sake. Don Raul, my absolute ball bag. This is genuinely the pits. Those were sort of his one, two, three. And I was minded uh, as he sat there in November, in Portugal, in the rain, of the famous Guns N' Roses song, November Rain, where it was written... Nothing lasts forever. 
and we both know hearts can change, and it's hard to hold a candle in the cold November rain. We've been through this such a long, long time, just trying to kill the pain. Oh, yeah. But lovers always come and lovers always go, and no one's really sure who's letting go today, walking away. Uh, I think the Guns N' Roses song November Rain is extremely apropos of uh, Tim's experience in Portugal and our experience watching it at home. A very bleak experience, to say the least. And I don't think Emery did himself any favors with his comments after the match. Uh, Clive, this is a team, Vittoria, that that drew 1-1 at the weekend with a 13th place team in Portugal. This is not a good team. They had no wins in the group. They gave us a hard time at the Emirates. They gave us a harder time in this game. We outpassed them, but never really created anything. It is hard, legitimately hard, against bad opposition, really any opposition, to play one pass into or within the box. That is all we did. We had one shot on target. And after the match, Emery's comments, I think, are the comments of a man who who is feeling the pressure, saying basically, our first job was to be organized defensively, and we did that. You know, I'm sort of paraphrasing here. Emphasize the the defensive quality of the performance. I think that is just so out of touch with what the supporters expect at this point. Reading his comments after the match, do you get a sense that this is a guy who now maybe is feeling the pressure and, and going more into a self-preservation defensive mode than actually giving us anything to rely on? Because if you saw the pre-match interview, he did not look like he wanted to be there. He was very curt with the reporter. He, the interviewer, he he didn't really answer the questions. He, he is wearing the face of a man now who, uh, who thinks that his time might soon be up. It, it feels that way. Uh, it really does. And, you know, I, do, I saw a tweet earlier, someone said, you know, is, are we doing, looking at this correctly, you know, I'm paraphrasing, that he's potentially lost one game in 14. I'm not sure that's right. And are we overreacting? But I, I don't think we are overreacting because people are not stupid. They they know what they're looking at. They know you know, you can look at the, the the emotional intensity of a team. You can just look at a player, a set of players. Look at their faces. Look how happy they are. Look how engaged they are. Look at the disconnection amongst them, amongst them and the coaches. You now, people watch this stuff. It's not just about passes going behind people and the rest of it. It's the whole feeling of a of a team. And when you're connected to a team, like most of the people who have listened to this podcast, will be massively connected to what goes on at Arsenal. You spot this stuff. It's the intangibles as well as the actual facts and the data, what the data are telling us. It's all of the above. And I said you know, a couple of weeks ago, this has happened quite quickly. But it hasn't. But it sort of has in relation to how we've all come to a point of agreement so mm, quickly. Yeah, he's unified you know? the fan base. And I don't think he's getting nearly enough credit for that. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's just sort of, it's sort of swept in. Now, we've had debates about the manager, the, what he's doing. We try to understand him. We're learning about him. But, you know, some people didn't like him from day one. <clears throat> but, you know, we, we've all we've been... <laughs> wait, wait, wait. We've been we've I didn't been like nicely. him from day zero, I think you'll find. <laughs> Sorry, mate, I underestimated <laughs> Thank you. you. But, but, we, um, but we're polite. We're trying to support the club through change and... You know, some, yeah, and it's like, okay, we want this to work. Of we course, want this look, to work. can I stop yeah. just for a second? Whatever you, you thought going in, if you are a fan of Arsenal Football Club, you wanted him to succeed because his success yeah. is our success, you know? Exactly. We all want this to work, and we try to find reasons for it to work. But then we start to look, and it's like, oh, my God, this is over. Mm. I mean, this is, this is over. This is over. And it needs to be over. And it needs to be over really quickly. You know, and regardless of the result on Saturday, because that is not a football club, you know, and that is not something that unifies people and and keeps people. I mean, it's getting to a point where we all love Arsenal, but I'm starting not to like this. Mm. That makes sense. Yeah. Do you well, know what I mean? Well, so can I ask you a question then? Because you, you've touched on something that I think is really important. You're saying this is over and it does feel like it's over and it does seem pretty clear. I don't think a big club can run itself where the manager of Arsenal Football Club is you know, being is living result by result. That's because you can't plan for the future that way. You can't make intelligent decisions that way. I mean, if he gets a draw or a win at Leicester, he keeps his job. If he loses, he doesn't. Like, that can't be it. So at this point, how much 
concern or, or interest you have in seeing whether Raul and Adu make the move they need to make swiftly and decisively? I mean, at what point does what's happening with Emery start to raise questions for you? Because I think we've all felt pretty encouraged about the new structure behind the scenes. And that's something you've talked a lot about on this podcast, that the most mm. important change at the club was not Emery. It was the structure we put in place above him. And I think they've done some things that really encouraged us, certainly this past summer. How much encouragement would be dented for you if they got this wrong, if they dithered on this, if they failed to be decisive uh, in handling this situation? It's, it's a litmus test for them, without a doubt. Great way to put it, yeah. There's a, there's a, there's a natural break in the fixture list. We There's a game, funny enough, with our, probably our chief competitor for the top, <laughs> top four, please don't laugh, top four positions. And so live on TV in the UK, half past five on a Saturday night. Wow. I'm telling you what, this needs to go well. And if it doesn't go, even if it does go well, I still feel it won't be a unifying result. I just think what's happened, particularly in the last three, four weeks, has been so poor and listless that even a a stirring result, I don't think it's going to heal things. Because I I just feel there's been significant damage. And I didn't ask myself, what what is that? What's what's happened? Now what's really happened? Touch and feel. What's really happened? Are we just playing poorly? Have we lost confidence? Have the players lost confidence in him? There are still there are many threads and theories, but we all feel the same. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. We all feel but it's like, could we say, well, he's done this? You know? But there's a number of things that people are, are challenging. But the one thing is, for me anyway, I don't know if I'm getting this right, Elliot, is none of us feel good about what we're seeing. Right? Right. And we don't feel as though we're progressing. And the, for me, the club is losing aura, losing position, losing stature, losing its values, losing its identity on the football well, pitch. And losing something it's else. Losing, so, sorry, so anything. let let me ask you this, because you talk about things it's losing. What about losing a bright crop of young players at a key moment. This is something that I think, you know, I'm, I'm starting to be a little concerned about, you know, watching mm. Martinelli out there and, and watching Maitland Niles, um, you, you know, Willick, I thought was, was okay in this game, but obviously there was really no access to midfield yeah. and, and to the forward line from the back. And some of the young players that are out there, Saka, who, you know, is so supremely talented, but now looks like he's getting sucked into the morass a little bit. Like, how concerned are you that one of the things we we were somewhat crediting Emery for, i.e. the handling of the youth, is now saying that we have to worry about in that having this many youth players in the first team at a period where there is a manager that is scuffling so badly could ultimately be harmful to their development? It could be harmful. The, the, our youth players are so young that they'll, they'll, they'll come again. You know, they're inexperienced, they're talented, but they're 18, 19, this group, you know. If you're looking at from 30,000 feet, you're looking at the youth player at Arsenal. That is one thing be... about being young. You can always come again. <laughs> exactly. It'll what? be Gwen Doozy. Is that Gwen pa- Paul? <laughs> is he on? Paul, do I hear? <laughs> Gwen Doozy is the one. He's, he's a superstar young player from, from outside the club. And he seems to be um, you know, an Emory love child per se. So I think there are two or three players in this club, maybe you're talking the two strikers and probably Guendouzi. They have the most strength from a player perspective. And what I mean by that is, if they start to pipe up, mate, things will change really quickly. And I think the contract situation with the forwards are, are key. There was a, you know, the whole thing with Mourinho leaving Manchester United, you know, there was a, you know, the fighting with Pogba, etc. that was going on. But the one thing that saw him out the door was the moment Marcus Rashford went to the board and said, I'm not sure about signing my contract with this guy in the club. Yep. The next day, he was done, literally. They weren't going to see a Manchester boy, homegrown, come from the academy, superstar talent, playing for England, all the rest, walk out of the club because of some manager. right? And there comes a point when the hierarchy asks, we have to look around and say, okay, we have to protect our assets here. We have to protect our players, protect our player pool. We have a plan for for January, we have a plan for next summer, and that needs to be driven by the right manager. So this is beyond Leicester result. This is about our position in the game, maintaining our squad, maintaining our squad value, our squad development, and having a clear pathway going forward. So I'm hoping the hierarchy are doing their jobs because the two-year plan with Emery has just reached 16, 17 months. So for me, it's come, you know, it's too early. 
it's too soon. So, so now we have to go another path. It's going to be interesting to see if we're ready for it. Do we need a step change to get to that that next path? Do we need to look internally and add some people to carry us for the next few months? Other teams have done that and get a caretaker in. I'm not sure, but I am sure that this can't continue because it, it just can't. No, no, it it has to change. And, you know, I mean, that one of the things that I think is interesting, too, is just the way none of the different systems or tactics that he tries gets the performance out of the team that that he might want. And it does make me wonder, Clive, you know, we spend a lot of time talking about individual player performances and tactical setups and systems, and we try to be analytical about the football. I do wonder sometimes if we, by virtue of doing that, underestimate the importance, and maybe not that you underestimate, but just that we, we under-discuss the importance of being a man manager, being a leader, inspiring your players, getting yoking performances out of them through the their enthusiasm to play for you and their excitement to be a part of your project. And, you know, I mean, there is still a leadership component to being a coach. And I, I wonder if Emery is just simply too cold and analytical for what these players want. But it leads to another question. I raised this on the Patreon pod, and I want to get your take on it. Before we start to wrap up, and remember, Rob Tanner's coming up after the break, uh, Lester writer for The Athletic, to preview the game at the weekend. But, you know, when I play FIFA, if I use one system, one game, and another system, another game, and change systems at halftime, my little AI-controlled players just run into the position they're supposed to run into, and they play. If I put Aubameyang at center half and Mustafi at center forward, they run into the positions they're supposed to... Like, you can do that. But real players aren't AI characters in a video game. So I'm curious, you know, we play four diamond two, we switch to four, four, two at halftime. We play a back three, three days after playing a four diamond two, we were playing a four, two, three, one. I mean, for players, I can't imagine, especially a team that is in such disarray, that they can assimilate the instructions they're being given, the different instructions, the different positioning, the different systems they're being given so frequently and never have it be cohesive. How much of the problems we have do you think are a reflection of the fact that players can't, aren't robots? They can't simply be given a different system every three days or, or even every 45 minutes and be expected to look fluent in it. I mean, players can adapt systems quite easily, but it's about the messaging you're given around that adaption, right? So, or adaptation, sorry. I think... Yeah, same difference. Yeah, the messaging is so, so important. I just cannot tell you. They have you know, many meetings, many discussions, individually, one-on-ones, tactically, group sessions, pattern play, coaching. Everything is about how you, how you play, how you move the ball. It's easier to build a pattern if you're using a similar system, but you can build patterns by changing systems. But the regularity by which we're changing systems, the concerns we have over certain communication skills, the ability to communicate is a, is a massive skill to engage people to. Footballers, if they're not having you, they'll, they'll let you know. They'll just switch off. The moment you lose them, you don't get them back. You really don't get them back. They are very binary. You have to engage them. You have to get them on side. And when you don't, trust me, they know how to let you know. I, and it be it just it just permeates yeah. that wildfire for a dressing room. I, and I'm just thinking, aligned to his communication skills and the changes in system, I think he's not helping himself. I think he's overcoaching. Yeah, well, and I absolutely agree with that. I mean, look, I've driven a car 10 million times in my life. If you put me in a rental car in London where I had to drive on the left side of the road, I'd struggle. I know exactly how to drive a car, and I would be terrified and unsure and slow and hesitant driving in London. Um, And I imagine that's not just because I'm an idiot. I think that's probably true of most people. Some people might be able to do it right away. They just have an affinity for it. But, like, I do feel that there's some of that in football. I mean, the more repetitive something is, I I cannot help, but when I watch Manchester City, for example— they make passes without looking to players who are standing where they expect them to be. There's just so many times when I watch good teams that are well-coached, that are playing well, that they have those automatisms that Arsene Wenger always talked about. Look, I don't want to lionize or sepia-tone Arsene's football. The last few years were dire. But like the one thing that did seem to be a feature of his play is that 
the players sort of, always sort of roughly knew where they were going to be for each other, and they were available in those spaces. And so you could play a lot of one-touch quick passing and move the ball that way. The reason I, I think there's less of that at Arsenal right now isn't just a lack of technical skill. It's a lack of understanding where your teammates are going to be at any given moment because they're in a different place every game. And, and that could be wrong, and I could... Look... Sometimes no, you reach think, a point. I, let me just finish this off. Sometimes you reach a point where you're trying to find answers and explanations for something, yeah. and you discuss it, you know, three hours a week on a podcast, where you just start going further down the intellectual path than you need to. It could just be as simple as he's overcoaching; it's not working, and the players have given up on it. But I, I do think, Clive, that that when you're struggling and when you have players who feel unsure, the best thing you can do for them is give them something consistent. Yeah, simplify. That's what we said last yeah, exactly, week. Yeah, exactly. Just simplify things. Just keep it simple. Just simplify. Gives people something to hold on to. And I don't mind if it's the back three, but then do it all the time. Do you see what I mean? Mm. Let's build upon it. Right? If you're gonna be a four, two, three, one guy, well let's let's do it. Let's build upon it. So we can all see, the players can all see, they can see their roles in the squad, they can see what positions they have to compete for, and they can see how that position needs to be played. Or, or what they can bring to that role. We don't have those roles defined. We don't have those positions defined. We have a group of young, talented footballers that are running around trying their best on some days, and some days failing and some days succeeding. And when we succeed, it tends to be quite individual. It doesn't come from any set pattern. And I do question, I do think we overrate some of the players, but I'm going to hold that thought for a little while because... I don't see anybody exceeding expectations at the moment. And so that's got to be something else that's happening. So this isn't the time to talk about Sobias' lack of recovery speed, even though we can all see it. Do you see what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, maybe we can, you know, because if you're coached appropriately, you don't expose that recovery speed because you have much tighter distances and, and you're focusing on that player's starting position and you don't allow him to play wherever he likes. So you've, so his running power is exposed. That's what you do as a coach. You make sure that a player that's got a glaring weakness, you never see it. So if he's your man, then play a system that allows him to sit in a tight space, move the ball, pop it, and get people running through lines. And you tell him to penetrate the team, and you tell him to pass forward when he has the, the opportunity to and not have too many touches. So I will not kill him, even though I just have. But I won't kill him because I don't think he's getting that message. I don't think he's playing within that framework. Because we can all see the big distance he's, gonna, he's having to cover to the point where he pulls his hamstring. Mm. So it comes back to clear messaging. What are you trying to achieve? What are you trying to fix? How are you progressing us going forward? Stop worrying about every single other team. Let's try to get something in shape where we are playing some form of pattern and play that we can all recognize and get behind. Because we can't see that. And because we're not connected to the man in charge, then we say, well, you know what? I, I quit. Mm. I quit. You know, literally. It, it feels like that, Elliot. That, is that too dramatic? It just no, feels I, like- I think you've nailed it. And I think that I quit is a perfect place to stop. Um, I wish that there was no such thing as copyright laws or digital rights management or, you know, whatever that stuff is, because uh, I would definitely play a clip from November Rain as the interim music here, but... Instead, I guess we'll just do an athletic ad. Clive's on Twitter, Clive PAFC. Thanks, Clive. Thank you very much. Coming up, we are going to talk to Rob Tanner about Lester and what to expect this weekend other than uh, pain and November rain and all that. So in any event, uh, stay with us. Coming up with Rob Tanner, more after this. Don't go anywhere. Okay, it's time to tell you about The Athletic, the new home of football writing and a world-class sports website. You can get The Athletic for half off and a month trial right now if you go to theathletic.com forward slash arsenalvision. You'll help the pod, and of course you'll help The Athletic too, but that's a good thing because you will be at the new home of football getting world-class writing and the best coverage of Arsenal from writers like Amy Lawrence, whom we love, has been on the pod, David Ornstein, James McNicholas, also known as Gunnerblog, myself, but don't let that hold you back. The coverage of sports is unrivaled, and there's no advertising to get in the way, no clickbait, they're not chasing ad revenue, they're just trying to write great in-depth articles. They've broken some incredible news. They've had some incredible interviews. Loved the article about the Eddie and Ketty load to Leeds and how that came about. So there's a lot to like there. Try it out. It's a month free. And then if you stick with it, it's $2.50 a month. That's it. So you can go to theathletic.com forward slash Arsenal Vision and try it now. See what all the buzz is about. Go sign up now. Theathletic.com forward slash Arsenal Vision. 
All right, we're back, and now we get a chance to look forward to what will surely be another uh, humiliating and dispiriting performance the weekend against Leicester. And to discuss that with me is the gentleman who writes about Leicester for The Athletic. His name is Rob Tanner, and you can find him on Twitter at RobTannerLCFC. Hello, Rob. Hi, Elliot. How are you doing? Great. Yeah, I really appreciate you coming on um, to discuss uh, something that we don't really get to discuss uh, on this podcast very much, which is a, a healthy, high-performing team that is coached by a coach who seems to have a clear idea of what he wants to do with his players. So that'll be a nice change for us. Um, you know, one of the things that I thought we could start with, just as we sort of draw a line in the sand, a difference between uh, Emery and Rogers, is... What Rodgers has done since he's arrived that has worked so well. So he came in in February, and I know that because I have memorized that detail and not because you told it to me just before we hit record. Um, So he's been there less time than Emery, but certainly what he's trying to do seems to be working and the players seem to be understanding it. So in your mind, what has Rodgers' approach been and uh, what would you say so far for the early returns on his, his time at Leicester? I think uh, Brendan uh, identified that at uh, Leicester there was a young side that was developing. Claude Puel divided uh, the fans in many respects, his predecessor, um, with the way he went about his business. But he did face that really difficult task. And I think a lot of people sort of forget this, that that title winning, that amazing title winning season of 2016, that side was getting old and had to but there had to be that natural progression, bringing in younger players. And he started that process, but it was very hit and miss. And uh, a lot, there was a bit of division in the camp as well. Some of the, the, the players and some of the staff weren't really enamoured with Puel's approach. But Rogers, when he was at Celtic and on course for a, a historic treble-treble, must have identified that there was massive potential at Leicester, not just on the pitch, but off the pitch as well with the owners and the and the, the, the setup at the club. And uh, so that's why he decided to leave Celtic when they were still on course for that treble treble to come to Leicester. And straight away, he um, put his mark on the, on the, the club. Um, straight away, he identified that the players weren't as fit as he wanted them to be to play a very high intensity pressing game. Uh, so he worked on that straight away. And, but above all, he got everybody on side. He's quite a charming uh, gentleman from Northern Ireland. Uh, he's got a bit of a, you know, the Irish Barney about him. And uh, he, he just brought everybody together. He identified that the senior players that were being pushed aside a little bit by Claude, he got them on side. That's Jamie Vardy, Wes Morgan, Christian Fuchs. And he realised they still had big roles to play at the club. And what he's really done with the team, he's built it around Vardy. Well, Claude Puel would have Vardy in or out and he would play play with different systems and it wasn't set up to get the best out of Vardy. Now, he's a, a top goal scorer. He's one of the best in Europe, not just in England. And uh, so Rogers identified that he needed to build the team to get the best out of uh, Jamie Vardy. And we've certainly seen that this season. 19 goals in 21 games since Rogers took over. And that's a phenomenal return. It's certainly the, by a long shot the best in the Premier League now. Uh, he is the top goal scorer in the Premier League as it currently stands. And it's uh, it's been a, a fantastic transition. And I have to say, I think the football they're playing uh, the, is very different to the 2016 uh, season. And it's so good to watch. I mean, 2016, that Leicester team that um, won the league by 10 points. I mean, people forget that. But they well, we, we don't forget that at Arsenal. I'm sure you <laughs> I know because you guys picked your local, your, your North London rivals to uh, to, to second spot. Um, but that season, and, and actually, Arsenal beat Leicester twice that season. You know, they only lost three games all season, so Arsenal seemed to have the upper hand on Leicester that season. But um, that team was built around a counter-attacking style. They sat deep. They really didn't want the ball. They wanted the opposition to have the ball. They'd suck them in. Then they'd break on the counter-attack when N'Golo Kante invariably won the ball. And, uh, yeah, Mares was in fantastic form. Vardy was in fantastic form. And they were flying. And that's the secret to that, them winning the title, and which was the most incredible thing I've ever seen in my life. But then now they're a very different side. They like the ball. They they play in little pockets. Madison and Tielemans are, are phenomenal on the ball. They've got great vision. And they've got Iosi Perez in, £30 million signing, playing off Vardy as well. And and the, the team just seems to be gelling so well. There seems to be an identity about what Rodgers has built at, at that team. They play a 4-1-4-1. They know exactly what they're doing as well. And at the moment, they're just in incredible form. Mm. I think there's been a lot of attention paid to to James Madison. Yuri Tielemans may be flying under the radar slightly by comparison, 
Uh, between the two of them, would you say that one has is having the better season than the other? I mean, I think they're they're both particularly impressive. And midfield is an area that Arsenal still seems to be sort of struggling to find solutions. Is that an area of the pitch that you think at this weekend could be a major advantage for Leicester? Oh, I do. I think those two, when they get on the ball, are excellent. They've got great vision. I mean, Tielemans is a little bit underrated for, for me in terms of some of the, the, the fans. They, mm. they all love Madison. And you can see why he's a very charismatic player on the pitch. He does a lot of tricks, and you know he's 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 got great uh, assists uh, at the moment as well. He takes all the set pieces. Tielemans, I just think, is a complete footballer. He's just got great vision. Gets on the ball. It doesn't matter whether he's in front of his own back four or just off Vardy in the final third of the pitch, and he can make things happen. He's a very good player. But I have to say, the the big unsung hero in that midfield is Wilfred Ndidi. Now, this mm. young lad sits sits in front of the back four. And he screens in front of them. And uh, he's so good at it. He's such an athlete. He can get around the pitch. He's big, long-legged. You know, he can make up the ground. But he's so good at reading the game now. And what that does for Leicester, not only does it protect Johnny Evans, who's getting on a bit now, but still in great form, and Charles Yunsu, the young lad that's come in to replace Harry Aguirre at centre-back, not only does he protect them pair, but he sits in and lets Ricardo Pereira and Ben Chilwell, the two fullbacks, bomb forwards. And both of them love to get forwards. Both of them like to get a goal. Uh, Chilwell could have had his second in two games at, uh, the, the last week because mm. he hit the post. You know, it's um, it, it gives them the license to get forward. And when you're playing with inverted wide men, which is what Leicester are doing at the moment with Perez and Harvey Barnes, there's space for them to exploit. And Wilfred Diddy holds everything together in that midfield, and that allows Madison and Tiedemans to go and do some damage in the final third. Yeah, it's interesting to me to to look at Leicester's performances and compare them against the results because, you know, one of the things I try to do is watch the games and understand what I'm seeing, but the other thing we try to do on the podcast, you know, is, is look at the underlying metrics uh, behind the performances to contextualize what's happening on the pitch. And Leicester are in a really interesting situation where they are dramatically outperforming the underlying metrics. Now, I don't know if you hate the dreaded expected goals, stats, and things like that, if you're one for the analytics or not, but I can tell you that uh, you know on the analytics front, Leicester are way out in front uh, of what would be expected. I mean, having scored 27 goals on 14 expected, having conceded just 8 on 12 expected. So rather than have you dive into the analytics, I guess all I would ask is, do you feel at all that the results have flattered to deceive a bit, that there's there's anything maybe under the surface there where you would say there might be some regression or we've gotten away with it in a few games uh, thanks to hot finishing from Vardy? Or do you think that maybe the those metrics aren't telling a whole story for some reason? I think Leicester are up there on merit. I mean, there has been games that could have gone either way. The opening day of the, the, the season... The 9-0 comes to mind. I feel like that oh, yeah. one was on, was on a knife edge, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I, I suppose Southampton might have said if they hadn't have uh, had uh, Bertrand sent off early doors, it wouldn't. I mean, it still would have. It could have been five nil. Yeah, yeah <laughs> you never know. You know. <laughs> Only day of the season against Wolves, the nil nil draw. Wolves had a, a goal disallowed through VAR, a very controversial handball that yeah. could have gone against them. But likewise, you know, Liverpool got a, a really cheap sort of penalty late on in that game at Anfield and they could have come away from Anfield with a point that day and so you know it swings around about in the course of a season it is a roller coaster ride but I think the way Leicester City are playing uh, the confidence that's that's been uh, oozing through them at the moment the momentum they've got they're up there on merit and, and I've I put this into context when they won the title in 2016 that shaped up the whole of the Premier League sides the big six were embarrassed by the fact that a side that had only just um, stayed in the Premier League the year before uh, with a great escape, uh, winning six of the, the, the final nine games to stay in the division. I got on to win the title, and after that, we saw Klopp come in at Liverpool. We saw Guardiola come in at Manchester City. We saw changes, and since then, that big six have dominated the top six slots, uh, the European places uh, in the Premier League. This is the first season since that title winning campaign that another side now is really threatening to uh, break into that top six and even into the top four. And I think Leicester City are, are up there on merit. Yeah, well, I, I mean, it's 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 hard to disagree. And I have to admit that I have watched quite a bit of Leicester this season. And whatever the underlying metrics have to say about their overperformance, I certainly think they are value for their position. Uh, I will mention, by the way, I'm enjoying your enthusiasm and information. It, it may be translating into you 
touching the microphone or rubbing something against the microphone. Uh, there, okay. that's the noise. That that's was good. it. <laughs> so I will, I will just uh, let you know that that is happening and, and, and certainly okay. can happen. Uh, but so, by the way, one thing that I just wanted to ask you about, it's sort of an aside, but you mentioned that Brendan Rodgers has won people over. I think one of the things that hurt him at Liverpool was a perception of him as sort of a farcical figure in some ways. You know, the huge picture of himself in his hallway, some of the stuff that came out during being Liverpool, the, the three envelopes, um, you know, sort of a a, a figure of ridicule, um, not necessarily for his tactical noose or, or his coaching, but just his personality generally. And I'm curious, you know, the, the words David Brent have, have come up sometimes in yes. uh, connection with him. Has he sort of evolved from being that guy at all in your estimation since he's arrived at Leicester as he maybe learned some PR lessons from what he went through during his time at Liverpool? Well, I can only judge him on how I found him, really. And um, since he's come in, and I spent a bit of time with him today, actually, and uh, he's been very gracious with his time towards the media. He um, he values uh, the public persona and getting the fans on side. Uh, and what, I haven't seen too many of those... Um, Brentisms that mm. uh, he was he was uh, famous for. Perhaps he's he's toned them down and uh, stuff like that. Perhaps he's aware of them now. But um, no, I think he comes across as a very focused guy. He knows exactly what he wants from his team. Uh, he's been certainly been delivering um, some fantastic team talks from what the players have told me. I mean, I think the first day they met him, it was the Brighton game when he came. He'd just been announced as the manager, and he watched the game from the stands and. Um, Mike Stahl, the assistant, took charge that day. And then after the game, he went into the changing room and he went in and he said, look, the reason I, t- I walked away from Celtic, the reason why I walked away from possible three more trophy in my cabinet is because I want to work with you and I want to work with you. And he pointed to them all and he went round them all. And, and that, after the Claude, Claude had problems with communication, not just publicly to the fans, but with the players as well. He, his mastery of English wasn't that great. And I think the way Brendan went round and just got them all on side from from the minute, the first minute he walked into the club, um, that set the tone really. And um, since then, he's been getting his message across superbly well on the training ground. The training sessions are far more intense than they were under Puel. They were very tactical under Puel and they were very long and they would have double sessions in the day as well, which is very continental. But, um, Sounds familiar British... to me, if I'm not yeah, going to be honest. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. But because but the, there's a British core to the squad, they want intensity. They want to go in and work hard for an hour and a half Obviously, still doing the tactical side of it. Still, you got because you've got to have the, all the you know the detail mm. in place if you're going to be successful. But um, they just enjoyed it more, and it wasn't long and drawn out. And and he's just got them all on side. He's great communicator. He really is. Yeah. So one of the things that you may have observed from a distance about us is that we don't really have a philosophy or system. Uh, we are perpetually changing it and evolving uh, or devolving, depending on how you see it. Before we get to your take on Arsenal, I'm curious, as we look ahead to the game this weekend, you know, uh, Rodgers' teams do tend to like to have the ball, have the ball in midfield quite a bit, and press up a little bit higher. And if there is anything you could latch on to Emery's teams preferring to do, it is to be a little bit more reactive and counter. And certainly with someone like Aubameyang and maybe Ozil poised to still be in the squad and who knows what's going on with Pepe, it is a team that can be effective on the counter. We haven't seen a lot of this team being effective doing anything, but is that a concern, do you think, going into this weekend, that maybe as poor as Arsenal have been, the few things Arsenal does well could be an interesting foil for how Rodgers likes to play? Absolutely. I mean, I know it's been... If you look at Arsenal this season, I know that there's still a lot of disconsent around the the club and it feels like from the outside then not a lot has changed from when Arsene was the manager and the, there was that disconsent with the fans and, you know, we've had the Granit Xhaka uh, incident as well. But if you look at the table, you know, only two defeats so far this season, they're still a dangerous team. And when you've got Aubameyang and Lacazette in your side, you've got goals. Potentially, you've got goals. And I think that's the frustrating thing for Arsenal fans, isn't it? Because they know that potentially this could, this could be a really good side. Um, it just needs a few more tweaks, a few more uh, new players coming in. Uh, they just need to get it right. They just need a little bit of identity. So, yeah, there will be an element of uh, you know Leicester still being very, very aware of what Arsenal can do to them on the day. In terms of the um, the, the speed as which Arsenal possess in attack, um, Soyuncu is quite a quick centre-half. Johnny Evans isn't. Obviously, he's in his early 30s now. He's slowing down, but he's he's reading the game superb. But they won't want to leave too much space in behind them. 
uh, against Arsenal and they will be wary of that counter and that's why Wilfred Ndidi will also be very, very important. And incidentally, I always think uh, when N'Golo Kante was at Leicester, I thought he would have been tailor-made for Arsenal. Arsenal been crying out for that sort of dominant yeah. holding midfield player for a number of years and they never seem to get one. Um, so, you know, Wilfred Ndidi now is performing again and I just wonder why haven't Arsenal gone out and got somebody like this somebody that gives them a platform for everybody else to go and play it just seems like Arsenal are just so inconsistent on, on, the, on the day they look fantastic to, to, to watch they play some nice football on other days they look soft mm. they look like there's a soft underbelly about them and you can get at them and uh, certainly if you can get the fans turned as well um, that's a benefit for you but um, yeah it's just it's, it must be frustrating for Arsenal fans right now because there is so much potential yeah, there is. I mean, how do you feel about the criticism memories coming under from a distance? It's what it's what the, the Premier League's all about. You've got to deliver. If you're going to be the manager of a club as big as Arsenal, a club that's used to challenging for titles and winning trophies, it comes with the territory. If you're not, if your team isn't delivering or, or you're not living up to expectation, then you're going to come on, under fire. Mm. Um, I, I, I get the feeling, though, just from reading and, and uh, listening from outside that they look like they're going to give him more time uh, to, to get this right. But he, he's, he can't mess about now. He's, he's really got to start delivering uh, with this side because he's had plenty of time now as well. But he need, if he gets another transfer window, he's got to address some of the deficiencies. Well, and, and that raises an interesting question. So, you know, look, Arsenal fans had one manager for 22 years. And when that happens, you don't really have a feel for the appropriateness of sacking a manager, what the right amount of time is before you sack a manager, how, how long a manager should really have to implement a system and, and show that he can be effective. And I'm curious to get your take uh, as, you know, presumably someone who's not just covered but supports Leicester and has been through managerial change, seeing what happened with Puel, the club's decision to move on from him mid-season, bring in Rodgers, and the immediate impact that made. I mean, do we maybe sometimes get a little too precious about the idea of sacking a manager and that they don't need as much time as, as fans might think, that, that it should be relatively straightforward to see that if they can implement a system and succeed? Or conversely, do you think that they, they do need more time and fans are impatient? Well, I think in, in, traditionally the British football... Managers got time. They were given lots of time. It's become it was, on the continent. It was very different. You know, managers come and go, uh, but it certainly has changed over the, uh, the last decade or so, uh, where managers simply don't get as much time as they used to. And some some of the sackings we've seen have been absolutely ridiculous. And uh, mm. I mean, I, uh, it was it was um, I can't remember his name now. Anyway, <laughs> couldn't have been that ridiculous then. <laughs> no, I think Crystal Palace. Um, Manager that came in, De Boer, manager yeah. there, and he mm. got about four or five games at the start of uh, the season, and then they got rid of him. And obviously, they were dreadful in those first four or five games. But you know, it was. But, but all right, so, so can I just stop you for a second? I, I get what you're saying, right? But like, I think there was a similar situation with Juan de Ramos at Spurs, and like, they wound up with Redknapp, and that was a pretty good period for them by their standards, anyway. Um, you know, like, do we maybe? There are so many managers, and they're so easy to replace, and. I think it's a lot harder to replace star players. You know, like if we were to lose Aubameyang this summer, I don't know how you replace 25 goals. But like, do we maybe get a little too precious about giving these these people time and that actually football's a, a little more simple than we make it out to be and they should be able to show signs of improvement fairly quickly? Or, or do you think that's a, a wrong view on it? Well, I, I always think it says a lot more about the people who hire them than it does about the managers themselves. If they, fair if, point. If, they yep. mm-hmm. if they decide after four or five, six games that that manager is the wrong manager, then they haven't done their job properly yep. in getting him in. Because you've got to be aware of what you're hiring. And it does cost you millions when you sack a manager because you've got to pay up his contract. Mm-hmm. So, you know, unless, he, unless you're sacking him for other reasons, you have to pay him off. So I think it says a lot about the people who recruit them. I mean, you, clubs have to ask themselves, what is their club's identity? What manager do they want to come in and will fit the identity of that football club? Uh, Brenda Rogers fits the identity of Leicester City in many ways because the fans want that attacking style of football. They've got a young side, so a younger manager who can identify with them and get the best out of them because he's, he's got a reputation for being able to nurture young talent. So he was a perfect fit um, for him. But if you look at the, um, the managers that Leicester City have had, it's quite a diverse group. I mean, you wouldn't put Nigel Pearson and Claude Puel in the same pot as similar sort types no. of managers. Uh, Nigel was very uh, was the perfect man at that time for getting them out of the championship, 
well, he got them out of League One when they were the third tier of English football, and then into the Premier League in two spells. He and was wasn't the, the club player. pretty heavily criticised when he was replaced. I mean, if I'm remembering correctly, wasn't it Ranieri who directly replaced him? Yes, it was Ranieri that came in, and Nigel was Tink- sacked. I remember it was called Tinkerman, and people said it was ridiculous, yeah. and he'd brought him up two divisions, and look how that turned out. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was an incredible story. I mean, totally different again to Nigel in many respects. Um, I mean, Nigel was sacked for non-football reasons. It was Mm. a scandal in in Thailand. But um, when Claudio came in, believe it or not, Claudio wasn't their first choice. They were trying so many different avenues. They went uh, for Gus Hiddink and they went for, tried to get Martin O'Neill back. There were several other managers they went for. And uh, Claudio was the first one to throw his hat in the ring publicly and say, yeah, I'd be interested in talking to Leicester City. But it took several weeks before we actually did see Claudio as the Leicester manager. So I think they exhausted other avenues and thought, well, we've got to get somebody in now. And and they went for Claudio. But look how it turned out. It was just incredible. I mean, that season will never be repeated. What happened at Leicester City then will never happen again. It was just astonishing. 5,000 to one odds Mm. to win the title and you go and win it. you, you, you can thank us later. I think we, we played a heavy part in completely shitting the bed after winning, was it on Valentine's Day even, at the Emirates, the comeback win, the Danny Welbeck header, there's oh, your fairy yeah. tale. And I was we, there, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I remember I was there, and Danny Simpson got did, sent did off. Did it feel like the day the title slipped away for you? I mean, for you, being honest, in that moment, did that feel like the end of it? Uh, not the end of it, but it was certainly a massive setback. Mm. Uh, uh, but I think that was a, a really pivotal moment in that campaign and and in that story, because speaking to Robert Huth uh, later on, he, he said like, because they were obviously Arsenal celebrated very, very well, didn't they? Celebrate that win. And they took selfies in the dressing room, and put them on social media. I believe and, we pulled level yeah. with that win. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. But there was a feeling that Arsenal were going to go on from there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and, and, <laughs> and dominate the running. Um, and that fired up the Leicester players. I, I think Robert Huth said like, you know, they all had a chat in the dressing room. and said, look, there's no way, we're letting these guys win the title. We're going to win the title sort of thing. And uh, I think uh, that really inspired them after that. Yeah. Painful memories. Not for you, of course. Um, <laughs> so, well, all right, let's, let's focus in just a little more closely on the weekend before saying goodbye. And I, again, I appreciate you taking the time to do this. Um, so it's unclear, I think how Arsenal will set up because we're different every game. We tried the back three in midweek and what was an absolutely dreadful, dreary uh, performance uh, in Portugal against Vitoria. We're coming off a, a couple really disappointing results consecutively in the league using a variety of systems. The four diamond two, a four four two, a four four one one. We've tried that. We tried the back three. None of it seems to work. So I'm not totally sure how we're going to go, other than probably that Aubameyang will be in the team. The rest you could take a wild guess. As far as how Leicester will set up, is there a, a clearer system? Can we expect you know how who Rogers will put out there and in what, what formation? Oh, absolutely. It'll be unchanged. Having beaten Southampton 9-0 and beaten Crystal Palace last week as well at Sellers Park, I can't see any changes. There's no injury issues. They will be 4-1-4-1. Uh, and that's half the problem for Arsenal, I think, is that he doesn't seem to know what his best formation is to get the best out of the players at his disposal. He doesn't even know what his best 11 is at the moment. That's the issue for Arsenal. And that's why he's got to you know, really start to perform now. Uh, but Leicester have got a very settled side. They're a very settled system. They all know their jobs. Um, it, will, it will be exactly the same. Pereira and Chilwell at fullback. It will be Evans, Siunsu, Nididi in front. Then you've got Tielemans and Madison. And you'll have Harvey Barnes, Perez and Vardy up top on his own with everybody uh, giving him the support. There's no surprises there. Um, but it's a it's a very effective system they're playing because it gets the best out of their key players, and that's the problem for Arsenal. They've got to find that answer. Is there a weakness there? I mean, do you see a space that Arsenal could try to exploit? Uh, that if you had to draw a worst case scenario for Leicester at the weekend, you'd say this is probably where it would start to go wrong. Yeah, as we discussed a little bit earlier, a bit of bit pacing behind uh, if they can target Evans in terms of uh, you know getting him in a one-on-one situation. That might be uh, an area of joy for them. Also, when Pereira and uh, Chilwell do bomb forwards, there is spacing behind the fullbacks, so they might be able to um, get in there. I mean, but that would mean Aubameyang, Lacazette, whoever plays, trying to to run them, to, trying to make them turn so that the penned. Those fullbacks who are very effective get penned back. I mean, it's a similar sort of thing to Liverpool. Liverpool are very effective at fullback. They get forward, and that's the so If you stop their fullbacks, a lot of the time you stop a lot of their attacks. And I think if Arsenal can do that, if they can pen the, the, the Leicester fullbacks back, then um, they might have a little bit of joy. And also, dominate the ball a bit. 
give have some possession. That's but never do happening. Some, but, <laughs> never but do, but do something with it. Mm. I mean, it's all right knocking the ball around at the back, but you've got to be effective. You've got to get the ball forwards and you've got to try and hurt teams. Um, Leicester are, are dominating possession in games at the moment, but they're actually doing something with it. They're not just passing it for the sake of passing it. They're looking to find pockets of space, get Tielemans and Madison on the board who can then turn and look for Vardy. So the, that that would be the Leicester game plan, and I think if um, if they can deny them that sort of uh, that that uh, that supply line to Vardy, they might have a bit of joy. As far as staying up in the top four race for the balance of the season, I mean Leicester. This is me speaking from absolutely zero knowledge, so correct me if I'm wrong. I think it is a small-ish squad that is dependent on a few players being available the whole season and staying in in top form. Vardy obviously comes to mind. Now, obviously, when you have a star striker, I think it's true of any club that your star striker has to stay fit for your your fortunes to to remain in in any season but uh do you think that Leicester has the squad to have the staying power to stay in this top 4 race all season um do you expect that to be the case I think you're absolutely right that is the concern if there's something happened to Jamie Vardy and the team is built around him who do you do you put in to replace him and they haven't got too many options as a Do you still have yeah, Ian what Nacho, happened to him? He was he was an analytics darling. People loved Ianacho. Yeah, it, it hasn't really worked for him at Leicester. It was a lot of expectation on him. He's still only a young man, but um, you know, twenty five million pounds they spent for him, and he really hasn't had a big impact. And he looked like he'd lost all his confidence under Puel when mm-hmm. you saw him. He was really disappointing. He, I mean, the fans were get, starting to get on him as well, which didn't help. But this season, he's he's played two games in the League Cup and he scored in both of them. So huh. uh, he has. Brendan has tried. Uh, Perez as a number nine as well when Vardy hadn't played in that, those one of those League Cup games. But Ian Nacho uh, against Burton Albion in the last round looks like he could be the answer. He would be the man that they will turn to if there's a problem with Vardy. And, you know, Vardy has got a fantastic record for being available. He's very rarely injured. He sometimes gets suspended because uh, he sometimes he can make a rash tackle or two. But um, Ian Nacho is the, uh, the the plan B for them. But after that, they haven't got too many plans. I mean, they haven't. They used to have a big man striker. The club record signing was Islam Slamani, a big number nine. But he's gone out on loan again this year, and he's not featured for the last couple of years now. Mm. Um, so besides that, they really don't have too many options in attack. Well, I have to level with you. I'm not feeling particularly confident. In case you can't tell, at the weekend, I'll ask you two very quick questions to wrap up. Uh, the first is just: Do you have a prediction uh, for the game this weekend? I think Leicester will win. I think their momentum and their confidence is pretty high, but I don't think it would be an easy game by them for, for them for, by any stretch of the imagination. I mean, the last two visits Arsenal have made to the King Power Stadium have not been great. They haven't gone well for them. Um, both times they were beaten by three goals. So, you know, it's it's going to be a, a tough task for Arsenal and they've got to get it together. They've had a lot of problems off the field mm. uh, as well lately and they need, really need to start uh, pulling themselves together a little bit. But I don't think it's going to be... Um, an easy game for, for Leicester by any stretch of the imagination. Certainly, I don't think we're going to have another 9-0, that's for sure. But um, I think Leicester might just shade this one by the, an odd Vardy goal. Yeah, I mean, just to give you a sense of how low the the sentiment is at, at Arsenal and among the fans, and I know online sentiment isn't always reflective of, of real-life sentiment necessarily, but there were a couple of polls doing the rounds of, would you rather we lose at Leicester so that Emery could get sacked or win at Leicester, but Emery sticks around? Um, you know, I mean, when you reach that point, it's it's not tenable. The last question is simply this. With a team like Arsenal struggling and potentially looking to sack their manager, Manchester United can't be too happy with Solskjaer at the moment. You can look at Bayern, who have just re- relieved a manager. He relieved himself. Things at Barca aren't great. I mean, there are a lot of big clubs out there with some managerial turmoil. Any slight concern in the back of your mind that Rodgers will be upping sticks for, with no offense intended, bigger jobs uh, in the near future? Yes, that's also a concern as well. Obviously, because he's doing such a fantastic job. And if uh, Leicester City are uh, making things happen again in the Premier League like they did in 2016, then uh, certainly there's going to be clubs um, sniffing around him. And this is the problem for Leicester. It's not just the manager, it's the players as well. They've lost a a key player in every transfer uh, summer transfer window for the last three years since they won the title. There's always the fear that other clubs are going to be able to come in and entice them away, not just with the prospect of winning trophies, but also with the pay that they can offer because Leicester, in terms of pay, are about eighth or ninth um, highest Mm. payers in the Premier League. Uh, It's half. 
their wage bill is half what it is at Man United and, and Manchester City. So there's always that fear that they could lose their key men. But um, what they have in place is a plan to just keep trying to replace them. So when they lost N'Golo Kante, they got Nididi in and developed him. You know, and th- th- this is the the, the 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 philosophy around Leicester City, and this is why. Well, I think you trade swapping drink water for, uh, for for Madison and Tielemans any day. You know? Yeah, but Danny Drinkwater was a key player in the 2016. Oh, sure, sure. no, no disrespect yeah. intended, but I, I actually think you, you sort of upgraded there, just at, from a technical yeah. talent standpoint. Yeah, uh, and I would agree. I would agree. Um, Kante was phen- phenomenal that yes, season as well, but Benididi's uh, now starting to come to. He's starting to mature, and uh, this is what Leicester do. But perhaps the top six sides don't do. They don't think they've got the time to let players develop. They've got to get in the ready-made article straight away and have instant success and that's what builds a pressure on them whereas Leicester think well we'll we'll just let these lads develop for a season or two and if we don't get there isn't that same expectation to get uh, Champions League football every season Mm. Um, that might change in the future but that's their philosophy at the moment but so there's always a concern that a you're going to lose your manager or one of your key players again and that probably will happen at some stage well there's no concern about us losing our manager we're desperate for it so we can eliminate that from our concern look Rob I really appreciate it uh, and and hopefully we'll get a chance to do it again uh, maybe uh, in advance of the return fixture at the Emirates but in any event I would wish you luck at the weekend uh, I don't mean it but I, I really do appreciate you coming on Thank you very much, Elliot. It's been enjoyable. Yeah, it, it absolutely has. So you can find Rob on Twitter at Rob Tanner LCFC and hopefully on a uh, Arsenal Vision post-match podcast again in the future. And of course, read him on The Athletic. Best way to do that, theathletic.com forward slash Arsenal Vision. You get a month free and half off. We are going to uh, take a break now and come back with another podcast in the near future where we will moan and complain and, and whine about everything Arsenal. So I hope you will join us for that. We love you and we'll talk to you after Arsenal 10. Let's do Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.